I'm never convinced that people do things purely for for the money in itself. It's more the money is a score. So it's, it's like a game where the score is the size of your bonus or the size of your salary. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. And today I'm continuing my chat with Michael Ridpath, who was the author of our fiction book of the month, which we discussed last week. That was Traitor's Gate, which is based around the Munich 1938 trip made by Neville Chamberlain, which is the subject of a Netflix movie. Um, and so to, this week we're continuing our discussion on some of Michael's other work, which features the 1930s spying some Icelandic murder noir mysteries that he writes and also uh, financial crime thrillers so that's really uh, what you heard at the top there with Michael going into what motivates some of the crime that takes place in the financial world. Elsewhere at Aspects of History we have our non-fiction book of the month which is uh, Leander Delisle's book The White King and this really is to coincide with the the trial and execution of Charles Charles I, which was in January uh, 1649. And she's also written a fantastic piece on that trial. It's all on the homepage, and you can read an interview with her where she talks about her book, The White King, which won the Historical Writing Association's Award in 2018. Fantastic book. So head over to our website for that. Also on our website, and I mentioned this last week, and I do recommend you have a look as well on our homepage, we have the Aspects of History Unpublished Historical Novel Award. This is a fantastic opportunity for any of you writers out there who've got an unpublished novel, or even self-published, we're accepting self-published, it's got to be historical fiction, the prize is £500 plus the novel will be published. And so you have between uh, the February the 1st, which has already happened, up until June the 1st this year to enter. Uh, there'll be six nominees announced in September. And then in November, on the 1st of November, we announce the winner. So head over Upload your uh, manuscript. It's £10 an entry, but it's nothing when you consider that the potential rewards available. Once again, a £500 prize, and uh, the book would be published with uh, one of the UK's leading independent publishers. So that's what's happening back at uh, Aspects of History. So um, I will move you over to me talking to Michael, uh, where we, we cover the 1930s. If you want to get hold of me, I'm on the Twitter at OllieWCQ, that's O-L-L-I-E-W-C-Q. Always happy to hear from you, and I hope you enjoy the show. So, we've mentioned the 30s, um, obviously, and this is a bit of a segue into your other novel, which is The Diplomat's Wife, which captures another area of history, which is so interesting. Are all those communist spies running around in the 30s? Now, we all know about the Cambridge spies, probably, um, 
but I was interested, this novel is interesting because you, I know you, you've written about young people at that time who saw the only alternative to fascism as communism, which drove a lot of their, them into the, into the arms of, of um, I guess, what would it have been, the um, sort of foreign version of, of the NKVD in those days? Yeah, well, it was the Comintern, um, yes. which was, uh, the, which was a, an international organisation of, of communists. And the point was it was supposed to be nothing to do with any one country, but it would lead to an international communist world order. Since there was only one country that had communism, obviously the Comintern was based in Moscow um, and Moscow was very helpful to it. And that was what a lot of communists for a little while in the 1930s believed. And it, it is interesting how, I mean, we, we saw it, a, well, we didn't see it with the financial crash, but obviously 2930 was a major economic dislocation where things were going seriously wrong and young people, young intellectuals and others thought this, this just isn't working, capitalism is broken, communism is the way to fix it. Um, and I can, um, you know, obviously I don't agree, but I can understand why people would think that and wouldn't necessarily think that thinking that was, was betraying their country at all. And of course what's interesting is how that becomes betraying your country. And it did, it did that via this, uh, the Comintern. So the Soviet handlers were all supposed to be working for the Comintern. And so all the, came, all the Cambridge spies and the others thought they were working for the Comintern rather than, um, than Russia. And then it kind of became clear that they were working for Russia. But by that time, it was, it was too late. Well, there was one event that I was interested in, which is which was debated in the Oxford Union, I think, in '33, which is... Yeah quite interesting the the proposal was or the the motion was that um, you should not fight for your king and country yes now i don't think they specified who they would be fighting in that debate did they but um i i was reading up on it and it was difficult for them to find people to propose and and support the motion uh, at the debate but it was passed oh, right. fairly comfortably yes i was reading that yes. the philosopher C.E.M. Jode was um, was brought in after a number of people, including um, Birch and Russell, who pulled out to 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 talk for the motion to that you shouldn't fight for your country. And Jode, a philosopher, I think later tried to become a Labour MP, and then <laughs> it's quite funny. He ends up. Um, he ends up his his downfall is that he fails to pay for uh, his train ticket on the way to uh, Devon. Shades mm. of Jeremy Corbyn here, um, but he uh, but he um, he took a, a policy when he got on the train was he didn't agree with paying for the paying for his tickets. But anyway, that was his wow. downfall. So we've gone off on a slight tangent there. But um, <laughs> um, this Oxford Union debate made, made quite a few waves in those days. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you was John King and Ernest Oldham, who, who did actually spy for the Russians successfully yes. during the 30s, whereas the Cambridge yes. were active later. I wondered if you could talk a yeah. little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good book by um, Richard Davenport Hines about the Russian spies. And they started off, um, I think the first recruits were in 1919 with the police. So the police went on strike, um, and there were lots of strikes all over Britain in 1919. They were very sort of socialist inspired and communist inspired. So they had a few recruits from the police, and they, they recruited various other sort of um, working people, low middle class people. 
And then there were quite a few of them. And then they managed to get um, uh, people who were, I think, I think they were king's messengers, those um, uh, king and Oldham. Um, on, on, I think they were king's messengers. So, so basically, they were people who were taking um, messages to and from the embassies uh, back back to London. Um, and then it was only later that they began to uh, start recruiting people who were from Oxford and Cambridge and were more likely to become part of the establishment and therefore useful later on. So, but there were, there were lots and lots of, of lower level spies who did pass over some secrets to, to the Russians in the 20s and the 30s who, who were much less famous. And uh, of course, the, the Cambridge spies, I guess that, well, they were moles, weren't they, really, for, for many years after yeah. they were recruited. Um, now, the, the diplomat's, diplomat's Wife, which is, is that your most recent novel? I think it is, isn't it? You've got another yes, is, yeah. Iceland one coming out soon, and, and we'll yes. talk a bit about that. Um, but I wondered about, because when you're writing a spy novel set in the past, even if it's in the 30s, you know, the... the Le Carre looms large. I mean, are you a fan of Le Carre? I assume you are. And and how how was his presence whilst writing the novel? And because I'd imagine anyone, you know, I've just been reading Jackson Lamb novels by Mick Heron. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. And even reading, yes, yeah, reading those yeah. set, yeah, it was great. Mm. So I wondered what what your your thoughts were while you were writing. Well, th those are almost a. Um, well, I. My thought was it exactly that, but that I mean, Le Carre is um, he creates his own world, and I, I don't know whether it's a spy world, it seems very much his own. Um, I've never really met many people in real life who talk like people in Le Carre novels. Um, yeah, it's they, amazing, they're really interesting people, uh, and they're great characters. But I've always, often kind of wondered if they really are real. Um, and I met a few spies, and, and I know that MI6 has been affected by the novel so they've started using terms that Le Carre made up um, so obviously to some extent it's accurate but it, 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 things were very different in the 30s um, the British intelligence uh, uh, office was uh, the uh, sorry the SIS was was very famous um, because of spy novels before I mean there's uh, the, the Quex novels and various other people writing from about 1900 to 1920 and 30. Hitler loved reading spy novels about British spies. So every, everyone thought that the SIS were the were the experts at spying. So in some ways, that's sort of strange. Um, but of course, the 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 thing is, uh, when you're when you're writing about the 1930s spies, communist spies in the 30s, you're talking about young men and women just out of you know in their 20s. Um, and it's easier to try and think, well, what was I like in the 1920s? I had friends who were very ideological and, and try and put yourself in their position. And I think you come up with a slightly different kind of character than the normal one you, you meet in a Le Carre novel. So for example, in The Diplomat's Wife, The Diplomat's Wife's uh, brother, Hugh, is one of these people who is, um, believes capitalism is broken, communism is the only answer, and he infuses his, his sister uh, that this is the case. And then when Hugh is killed, she kind of takes up the mantle. And in doing that, that's not a really, I don't know, it's not a very Le Carre-like situation to be in. Um, although when I researched the, uh, the way that the Soviet handlers handled people like 
the diplomat's wife in my book and th there is a lot of spycraft which is just like a Le Carre novel um and a lot of that i think was, was developed in the 20s and 30s so you know dead letter boxes and all that kind of thing definitely went on and people meeting each other on park benches in regent's park and and, and paris and so on that that happened and moscow rules now i i didn't know if that was a thing or if it's is that the carrier language that's um because i i only mentioned that because it has filtered through into other novels now um moscow rules is almost <laughs> official yeah I, I don't think i um i don't think i came across that at the time but i wouldn't swear to it so uh, i yeah i think i'd pass on that one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You also have written a series of, of successful novels uh, set. Now, this is where we go Scandi Noir, don't we? It's uh, I, I, Iceland uh, detective novels. So why why did you do that? I mean, I, I, it's uh, you, your, your first series of novels are financial thrillers and they were really successful. Why Iceland? Or did it pick you? Well, I... <laughs> it, it probably did. Um, I wanted to uh, written a series of financial thrillers, which is something I knew about. And they say you should write about what you know. And but then when I was sort of thinking about my ninth or tenth book, I thought, well, I'd like to write about something I don't know, so then I can find out about it in much the same way I found out about Britain and Germany in the nineteen thirties. So I'd been on a book tour to Iceland when my first novel, Free to Trade, came out in nineteen ninety five, and it was just a weird, weird place that really enchanted me. And I thought then, well, one day I can write a book in Iceland, God knows how. And so Iceland kind of popped into my head. Um, and I did all sorts of analysis, which was a waste of time, pros and cons of writing books all over the world. But I basically, I came back to the place that had popped in my head at the beginning. And the good thing about Iceland is it's, a, it's an island. Um, you can find out a lot about it. It's a very interesting place, but it's not as big and complicated as, say, Russia or Germany. You can find out an awful lot about it fairly efficiently. Um, and the other thing, of course, is the history. So whilst these are detective novels set in the 21st century, two or three of them involve um, sagas, because I, I, I'd always enjoyed early medieval history. And of course, the Icelandic sagas are set in the 11th century or uh, 10th and 11th centuries. And I've kind of worked out ways of um, injecting those into, into a modern murder mystery a couple of times. In fact, my first book, Where the Shadows Lie, involves a lost saga that inspired Tolkien uh, to write Lord of the Rings because he was stuck after The Hobbit. Apparently he really was. So between chapter one and chapter two of The Hobbit, he discovered this lost, in my book, he discovered this lost saga, which meant I, I had to write the lost saga, which was fun. So that was, um, and then obviously, if there's a lost saga that Tolkien used, all kinds of people want to get it and someone gets murdered and so on. So uh, it was, um, I managed to get quite a lot of historical research into that. There's another one called The Wanderer, which is about uh, an archeologist who, archeologist who's sort of um, put fake clues about where the Norsemen, how far into America they got when they were exploring North America. And they do it for fun, and then one of them dies, and the, the clues are still out there, and they are they discovered, and people people get killed again. Uh, so so yeah, I managed to combine the the history and and the modern day detective novel quite quite amusingly for myself anyway. 
And now I was reading that you were saying in your in your um, in some of your descriptions in your website. It's fantastic. I do recommend. I'll put a link into your website where you go through all of your novels in quite a lot of detail. It's really interesting. Um, you've described the Icelandic people as odd, and yes. I was I was uh, tell me a bit about that. Why are they odd? Well, they're odd because. Um... For all sorts of reasons. I mean, in some ways... And they uh, say they're odd themselves, don't they? I mean, yeah, it's, we're not slagging them off. And <laughs> No, no, no. I, I, I do that to their faces. Um, they are very energetic. So although people think of long, dark Scandinavian nights, the summers, it's daylight all the time. So you go to Iceland in June, and they're all running around doing 20 different jobs. They all have several jobs. They work incredibly hard. They take very quick decisions. Um, they're very um, modern. They love modern fashions and bands on the one hand. On the other hand, there is this sort of deep uh, culture of superstition. Um, grandparents will think that they've spoken to elves, for example. Almost everyone's grandmother has spoken to an elf or great-grandmother. So the, the elves and the hidden people are always just beneath the surface, so, surface of Iceland. They're, um, the, the, the country itself doesn't have any trees and there's all these kind of frozen lava everywhere. So it's a kind of strange place with rather energetic, strange people. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's an extraordinary place to write about. So the descriptions are, it's easy to make the place sound interesting because it just is. And uh, you're, you've written, a, a, you're, you've also ventured into your first non-fiction book, Writing in Ice, which we reviewed. Um, it's positively reviewed. I recommend people check your, that book out. But do, talk a little bit about Writing in Ice. Yes, well, I... Um, I've written, well, at that stage, I'd written five Icelandic novels. So I had several hundred pages of notes, 500 pages of notes on a village in, in Snæfellsnes on history, culture, food, drink, um, Christmas, all sorts of things that were just there, which I find very useful. It's all sort of organised by subject. So if I'm writing something, I've just got a few paragraphs on whatever it is I need. And I thought, well, it's a shame. I, I should put this out there. You know, it, it, it's a, it should be available for everyone. And then I thought, well, that's a bit boring. Um, and then being a novelist, I thought, well, I, it needs a story behind it. So the story could be how I found out about Iceland. And then I kind of, if it's a story, it has to have some stakes in it. So um, when I was doing this, I was reinventing myself to try and sell my books again. So I didn't know that the Iceland books would be published. So it's a question of, um, you know, would, would I be able to research these, this country how would I find out about it? So I put in the interviews I did with various people and my sort of various experiences in researching Iceland. And I made it humorous because there is an awful lot of rather odd, quirky things that happen in Iceland. It's quite easy to, to put them in the book. So it's a, it's a bit like a, I mean, it's, it, I hesitate to compare myself to Bill Bryson, but I, I try to put a Bill Bryson tone, tone to it. So it's, it's kind of how a crime writer found out about Iceland. Um, and I hope if, if people go there, you know, they'll learn a lot about the country. So do you have, um, do you watch any of the, the TV shows that are uh, set around, um, you know, in Iceland? Yes, and yeah, yeah. Do you have a favourite? Um, yeah, I, I liked, um, well, Trapped is, is good, which is the one with the, the big hairy guy, um, Oliver Dari, and uh, it, it's based in a, a, a ferry comes in from Denmark to a, to a small town, and then there's a 
a dead body found and the town is, is snowed in. Um, so that's quite good. There's one called Press, which I think I got found on DVD and I don't know if it's actually been, um, it's a sort of series about uh, journalists, um, which is quite good. And then there was that um, one, I, I think the film I enjoyed the most was the one about the um, uh, crazy woman, mountain woman, um, trying to stop, uh, I think she's trying to stop a power station or something. That that was really good. I've forgotten what that's called. You know, I don't know. I'll have to find that one. Yeah. Do you ever? Do you ever? Because there's such a um, a massive element of of I guess TV culture, but it's filtered through everywhere. Is, is it? Do you? Are they of any um, influence at all when you're writing your novels? No. Um, I mean. All, all novelists find you, you, you people a producer will come along and option your book you get really excited and then nothing happens then another producer comes along more option you know and the, the problem is they ask you to consult and write free you know basically give them free work so they can try to put something together and whilst that's great most of them don't come off and I've had about three or four or five of those that haven't come off so I've, I've taken the view that if something does come from television or, or film that's great but I won't um, set any store in it until until it happens. So uh, I, I have, and, and I don't write specifically with a, the, a TV series in mind at all. Um, so definitely for write for readers of books. And so you've got a very interesting background, and we'll talk a bit about what you, your, your novels that made your name. But you started out working for a was it Saudi International Bank, which was a. Sidgery of, um, we, I think we might have shared a, a, a sort of vast uh, overall controller, uh, <laughs> giant American investment bank uh, I also worked for uh, uh, in the past. Um, yeah, but, right. and we, so the similarity we both have is we both got out. Um, right. But you got out a lot earlier. Well, you you worked for um, in in financial services in banking as a as a bond trader. You got out a lot earlier. I mean, I I was in um, a, a bank for far too long, um, nearly eighteen <laughs> years. You got out right. a lot earlier, so you must have done um, your, your crimes in the past were, were not so serious as mine. But what? Why did you leave? Well, I. I wrote a book which became Free to Trade, which is a novel about a bond trader, just for fun. Um, and it was really great fun. I became obsessed by it. So I get up at four o'clock in the morning and do a couple of hours before going into work. I gave up watching television. You know, it was a real, real labor of love. And when I finished it, I rewrote it and rewrote it. It took me three years. And then finally I had the book and I sent it out to be published. But I assumed it wouldn't be published because I was realistic. Um, and then it was, my, I, I got an agent and she put it out to auction with people all over the world. So it was a British who went for it, American publishers and German publishers. And I was getting hundreds of thousands of pounds in advance, which was completely mad, um, but meant I could give up work, you know, give up working for a bank and start writing um, full time, which is what I did, um, which was great. Although, Writing a second book um, in those circumstances is quite difficult because you don't know whether you're, they've all made some dreadful mistake. Uh, so it was, it was a little tense in some ways, but, but um, I, was, I was just very, basically extremely lucky. My book was, came out at the time when publishers were looking for a British John Grisham writing 
um, white collar thrillers. And then I sent in my white collar thriller by good fortune, just at the time they were all kind of scrabbling around. Um, and so, you know, that, that was my, I've had good luck and bad luck in my career. The good luck was right at the beginning. Now working in that um, banking industry, I, I get you, you had a lot of, it, well, it's fertile territory, um, I think for uh, if you're writing crime thrillers, Yes, I mean, what I found interesting was the sort of morality of it. I think morality is important for any, any thriller. And I, I don't know if you found this, but there's, there are the good guys and the bad guys, but a lot of it is shades of grey. And in particular, the people who start out, you know, nice guys who get tempted to break a rule, bend a rule here or there or lie to someone. And then it gets a little worse and a little worse and a little worse. And sometimes they find themselves completely, you know, enmeshed in some fraud or some terrible situation. And so the plot that I would normally have is in order to get themselves out of there, they have to kill somebody, um, which uh, fortunately doesn't happen very much in real life, but you can, you can see how it, how, it, how it could. So a lot of my characters are people who are tempted to stray from the, uh, not, not just, not just the, the bad guys, but the good guys as well, you know, who are tempted by the big bonuses, the next deal, selling, selling the next bond issue, uh, whatever. So it's a sort of temptation and ambition um, and the greed, although I've never, I've always, I don't know what you think, but I, I'm never convinced that people do things purely for, for the money in itself. It's more, the money is a score. So it's, it's like a game where the score is the size of your bonus or the size of your salary or the size or the amount of money you've made for your bank or your bank has made. Um, so money is important in that kind of way. I, I, I don't think people so much just especially commit crimes in, the, in that kind of environment for because they want to buy a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari or something. No, I, I think they um, often get it's like a, it's it's similar. It's like, like you say, as a score, it's like a competition with their colleagues and you know, it's, it's, it's definitely that competitive instinct. Um, I mean, I didn't work in a um, in a sort of uh, revenue generating role. Um, so I wasn't trading or, or in, the, in the merger side at all. But I found the whole, and I think this is different maybe with the way, with the rise of the uh, American investment banks where they start buying up all the smaller, smaller operations. I just found the mm. whole corporate atmosphere very suffocating and I just finally couldn't take it after a very long time. <laughs> but um I that I get the sense that that's not that that's not what you experienced so much or maybe it is I don't know. Well I was fortunate I mean it, the bank was called Saudi International Bank and it was partly owned by the Saudi government and partly by Morgan Guarantee which is the bank became JP Morgan that you worked for. But it was it was a small bank of about 200 people and it had a very good culture so we all helped each other they were nice people they came from all over the world. Um, I trusted the people I worked with, you know, everyone was basically honest. But outside, there were all these kind of, um, in particular at that stage, American investment banks, Solomon Brothers was, was one, Drexel, you know, and these, these were dangerous guys, but they were sort of exciting to deal with. So, so the, the danger was, was out there over the, over the, down the telephone wires. Um, and they were the kind of people I wanted to write about. So, uh, you know, I wrote about those the, the, that kind of investment banking um, culture, which I never worked for. And I, have, I was given a couple of job offers, but I decided I, I didn't want to work there, how much money they paid me. And I haven't regretted that since. 
Well, there's one of your novels, um, and I forget the title, but it, does it invo involve uh, a kind of sexual harassment um, accusation? Yes. yes. And, and that, that struck me because just that, when I was... Um, that's on the, on the edge. On the edge, right. That's on the edge, that. I, and I'll, I'll put links to all these in, in the show notes for our listeners. Um, but that that uh, the way banks handle that now, it's it's it, the, the the absolute panic is 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 for the bank to get out into the press that this is this is happening, and they'll do anything to avoid that fate of it being in the newspaper. Um, you know, the, you know, regardless of whether it's the right thing to do or not, it's just let, we yeah. don't want it to get out. Yeah. yeah. It, is is that something that that was the case when you were you were where you were? Or? Well, it's interesting. I mean, that was, I think, my seventh book. So I'd been I'd been out of the city for ten years, probably, um, and it had changed a bit. I mean, it, it was different then than it is now. I, I I did a fair bit of research as usual, um, and there were some places then which were definitely certain banks that were definitely misogynistic in a way that quite shocked me. I went into one dealing room where there wasn't a single woman there, which was odd. And, you know, 10 years before there would have been, and that they said they just didn't hire them because of the problems of what you were saying, which really shocked me. I mean, this is 2005, you know, there was a, a big London bank which didn't employ women traders because they were worried about people groping them. I mean, it was, it was appalling. And, and so then part of it was... Um, it was in flux. So, so there's bad stuff going on. People were trying to push it under the carpet, which was having a counterproductive effect. Um, and then there were also, I mean, I remember talking to a, a, a sexual harassment lawyer and saying, well, this is all terrible. Are, are all these cases that women, women bring up um, as bad as this? And she said, oh, no, there's a, a large proportion of them that, that are just made up. So there was the case of women making up sexual harassment cases. The whole thing is just a complete mess. And um, I, you know, once again, the little bank I work for, as far as I'm aware, none of that went on. Um, it probably did, and it was probably wrong, but kind of got out of it, got sort of weaponized and um, out, of, out of proportion in all sorts of ways. I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that there are some people whose lives were ruined by it. And that's what I wanted to... Um, to write about mm, interesting stuff and then uh, the the financial crash which occurred i mean it was hugely influential i well in virtually every country in the world um in 2008 um are you were you uh, how was influential was it on on your novel writing well by that stage i decided to give up on financial thrillers so then the question was should i go back to them and um one of the reasons I gave up on financial thrillers was I, I, I had the good guys and the bad guys in the shades of grey. They'd taken over these huge banks. The culture was corrupt, in my mind. Um, they were doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And when the crash happened, that didn't surprise me. That seemed to me like the inevitable result of this sort of corrupted culture. And I didn't really want to write about that um, because I didn't like it. And also, it, it didn't seem to be getting cleared out. However, Iceland was um, particularly badly damaged and they had a little revolution called the Pots and Pans Revolution where a few thousand people every Saturday afternoon 
will go into the square in the middle of Reykjavik and bang pots and pans and demand that the government step down. And the government did step down. So it was sort of successful. They overthrew the government in a very peaceful way. I thought, well, it'd be quite interesting to write about the victims of that. So in one of my books, 66 Degrees North, I, I write about a small group of Icelanders who want to be a bit more aggressive in their revolution and, and find the people who they held responsible for the, the crash and, um, and kill them. One of whom is the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was particularly tough on Iceland for, um, I suppose, understandable reasons, but my Icelandic bad guys didn't, didn't, didn't think that. So it's more about ordinary people revolting rather than um, the bankers themselves. That, that um, I mean, Iceland hugely impacted by the, by the crash. Um, um, that, that, I'm, uh, that, that sounds fantastic. I'll put a link in for that one as well. Now, one, I think we're getting to the end, but uh, there's one nice story. We've talked about the misery of, 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 of the, the financial world. The, the, the story I read, which is a true story, can you tell me about John Gnor? Uh, I probably pronounced that incorrectly, the mayor of Iceland, who, um, uh, how did he become mayor? And this probably going back to your point about Icelandic people being a little bit odd. Yes. So it's, it's Jón Gnar is his, is his name. Jón Gnar. He's a, he's, there's something called the Night Shift, which I think you can still get on British television, which, is a, which was um, a, a sort of office kind of thing set in a petrol station in, in, in Iceland. Anyhow, there's a, an election after the crash um, for Mayor of Reykjavik. And he stood on a platform of, he wanted to get a polar bear in Reykjavik Zoo. He wanted to build a massive prison for white collar criminals all over the world. So Iceland could make money by locking up white collar criminals. And his reason for doing the job was he wanted a chauffeur driven, driven car so he could drive it, but have a safe chauffeur to chat to on his way to work. And, you know, he's, he's the top comedian in, in Iceland and he got elected. Um, so he became mayor of mayor of Reykjavik, and he did a reasonable job, actually. But I think I mean Iceland is it's a classic political thing. Half the people think he was rubbish, half the people think he was pretty good. But but he, he did a he did a pretty good job because what happened was a lot of sort of quite capable administrators popped up and said, "Sure, I'll help you run run Reykjavik," and um, yeah, so he he, he did well. Uh, he's no longer mayor of Reykjavik, but it was a good effort. I think that's a, a nice story. Um, uh, final question then, Michael, what are you uh, working on next? Well, the book I've just finished and which is, is coming in, in a few months is called Death in Dalvik. And it's an Iceland book. Um, and it's actually about Bitcoin trading. It's about a 16 year old girl who is given five Bitcoins by her father. And she uses, she, she manages to trade this into uh, several hundred thousand dollars, which she uses to bail out her grandparents' farm, which is going bankrupt. Um, and this is a farm in, in the small fishing village of Dalvik. Then uh, her mother is so impressed by this that she gets involved in cryptocurrency and gets involved in a, in a dodgy cryptocurrency, which she sells to all the um, rich people in Dalvik. And uh, they all go bust together. And um, as a result, she's found murdered on a mountainside. So my man Magnus has to has to investigate. So it, it's partly, I mean, it's financial, I suppose, in a way, although I try and explain it as clearly as I can. I, I think Bitcoin is interesting. And um, I think it's interesting to view it from the perspective of a sort of 16 year old schoolgirl who then becomes a student 
uh, rather than you know from the point of view of a banker or some sort of financier. So it was a, a lot of fun to write. Brilliant stuff, Bitcoin. I, I mean, I guess that's for another podcast. Uh, I've, I've, um, I've, I've, <laughs> I've thrown a couple of hundred quid at, at Bitcoin. Uh, I started in December and uh, I've, uh, losses of thirty percent so far. So, uh, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I know, but it's, it's a long term thing. I, I'm just doing it for fun, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. You you don't indulge in Bitcoin, do you, or the or any cryptocurrency? Well, normally. I mean, normally it's the kind of research I do. I, I would have bought a few hundred pounds worth, but um, it's it's so. I was worried about computer viruses. I was worried about tax. I was worried about, you know, all the kind of ramifications of, of trading Bitcoin. So I just like I won't I won't be bothered. I'll just I'll just find out how other people do it. Oh right. So no, I'm invested myself. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have, have, have done that. Oh, right. Uh, okay. Right, Michael. That's fantastic. It's been. Um, Great talking to you. Uh, good stuff. And, yeah, it's fun to talk to you too. Yeah, and um, thank you and best of luck with the new book. Thank you very much. Thanks. I do hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Always nice talking to Michael about all the different periods of history that he knows about. And also, good for any budding novelists out there. Speaking of which, I know I've I've banged on about this, but there's the unpublished novel competition. Tell your friends... Any anyone you know who's written a book, any anyone who's written some historical fiction that's not published or self-published can enter into our competition with a fantastic prize of five hundred pounds and the novel gets published. So next week I'm gonna have Keith Lowe on. Keith's a historian of World War Two and its uh, and its aftermath. Uh, he wrote a, a very good book called Savage Continent, all about how Europe, um, the state of Europe in the immediate uh, aftermath of World War Two. He's also written a good book on uh, the World War Two monuments and statues called Prisoners of History, and also uh, a fantastic book on the bombing of Hamburg. So I'm going to get him on. Uh, talk to him for a while about all that kind of stuff as ever you can get hold of me i'm on the twitter at ollie wcq o-l-l-i-e-w-c-q and i do hope you have a wonderful weekend thank you and good night